All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 26th day of March 2019. Before we get started with today's show, I want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, and Klondike Gold. I'm happy to be with you again, and uh, I'm also happy to tell you that this month marks the 10th anniversary of Turning Hard Times to Good Times. It has been a lot of fun hosting this show, and as long as the good Lord allows me to continue sourcing and speaking to guests who seek objective truth rather than their own self-serving version of truth, I plan to continue hosting this show as long as I am able. As it uh, was stated on the very first day of this show with Edward Griffin back in March of 2009, Unless you properly diagnose the cause of a problem, you can't fix it. And it is most certainly true that uh, those who run our financial system have never even come close to properly diagnosing the root cause of the devastating 2008 financial crisis, which means we are destined to suffer, unfortunately, destined to suffer more of the same uh, in the times to come. Now, that's not some sick, demented wish on my part aimed at getting rich on gold and gold shares. As I have said many times on this show, I am not a gold bug because I take pleasure in making money from systemic economic problems and suffering. I'm a gold bug because I know that the debasement of currency leads to economic dislocations, sufferings, and political strife, such as what we are experiencing in America and in most of the Western world's world, world right now. What is required, as Ron Paul pointed out time and time again when he was running for president and before that, What we need is a policy of sound money, which by definition means money backed by gold and or silver. But you need to dig even deeper to ask the question, why did America depart from sound money in the first place? And for an answer to that question, I think we need to examine a spiritual aspect of the human race, which which is one reason that I had Dr. Benjamin Weicker on my show last week to dig deeper for reasons as to why Americans, as of, uh, of all people, have chosen the religion of liberalism, which requires us to give up our liberty by treating the state as God. Sometimes digging deeper to find the answers uh, to why we have departed from sound money and other issues, Um, honest capitalism is not as interesting, many sometimes these issues, these deeper issues, is not as interesting to listen to um, as perhaps just trying to figure out how we can make some, some money. 
and some of the more practical things in life. But it is in my DNA to search for the truth and the real root causes of things because I want to know the objective truth rather than some self-serving political truth. Uh, I have to ask questions that may sometimes be somewhat boring to some people. Uh, but we do need, I think, to try to figure out exactly what is going on and, and so we can get to the root cause uh, and try to fix things. So from time to time on this show, uh, I will try to balance out uh, those deeper philosophical questions uh, with uh, what may be of a little more of more direct interest to us, uh, such as the topics of today's show, which uh, is I'm going to ask uh, Andrew McGuire to talk about Basel III and gold. Uh, what that might mean for the markets, and does it have any practical applications for us? Um, and, um, of course, uh, we're going to be talking to Chris Taylor as well. He is the president and CEO of one of the most exciting new gold exploration companies. That definitely has uh, direct impact on those of us who own that, those shares. They've done very, very well. And uh, Chris and his company may be on to one of the most exciting gold discoveries in some time. Uh, there is reason to believe it could be akin to something as big or bigger, potentially, uh, as the great Red Lake discovery that was the Gold Corp company making project. So this is really exciting. And Chris will be with me uh, after the second, uh, or in the second segment after our first commercial break. And as I said, a- Andrew McGuire will be with us to talk about Basel III. And uh, the guest that we have most frequent on this show, Michael Oliver, uh, who talks about practical things every time we have him on this show, uh, it's really good to have him with us. Again, thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to be back. Now, one of the things that I noticed in your weekend report that really caught my attention, uh, you talked about how T-bonds, the, the plummeting rates for the T-bonds, well, they may be, a lot of people may like those, especially people in the equity market may think that's really cool. Uh, but you're pointing out it's going to cause a lot of trouble with pension funds and elsewhere. Talk to us a little bit about about that relationship between declining interest rates and what the pension funds are going to be facing. Well, we know that pension funds globally, uh, not just here in Japan especially, uh, they have a demographic problem, <clears throat> the aging, uh, mm-hmm. longer population so for the, uh, and the younger people not taking up the slack, so to speak. So they have a problem there, but the the other problem is that of the assets they normally like to um, invest in, like safer assets, presumably like government bonds, don't yield anything anymore. In fact, they're negative yeah. in Europe and, and in Japan, and, uh, and our rates are coming back down again. And this is not because of the Fed. I'm talking about long-end rates, 10-year, 30-year, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Uh, those are moving primarily, in our view, due to an investor class shift away from stocks and into bonds just as, as like a safe place to park in the time being type of investment. And we think that's what's really driving the long bonds up in price, down in yield. And, uh, but that is a pincer effect. Everybody cheers that in the stock market. They get, oh, good, lower rates, that's good for stocks. Well, it is up to a point uh, in a bull market that has life in it. But we've got a decade now, an 11-year-old bull market in stocks, uh, assuming we continue up this year, which I don't think we will. Uh, that's very old. It's grossly non-confirmed by momentum, and therefore it is at risk. That's the other asset that pension funds have been moving more and more into in the past several years out of uh, non-yielding bonds. Mm-hmm. So while the central banks think they're doing the wise thing to stimulate the economy by keeping rates low, they're denying the pension funds uh, a safe, decent yield. And so they've had to take risk 
and it's been a shift, gradual but persistent over the last several years, into stocks. So now you're facing the other side of the pincer, which is the stock market, because if it caves, and we think mm-hmm. it will, we think it's probably topped, and we may have just seen a secondary top as well uh, a week ago, 2860 S&P. Uh, but if that caves, then both sides of the pincer are, are, are lethal to the pension funds. And you can go online, uh, you know, they'll take my opinion or word on it. Uh, there's much research been done. There's government agencies that monitor it, and there's many private research companies that have issued reports. You can Google them on the pension fund crisis. And they've, they've even categorized some of the states, you know, as, as in good shape, moderate shape, critical shape. And I think there's about five states in the country that are at the critical end, including New Jersey and Illinois. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you deny them stock return, and if you look back sideways on the S&P right now, there's not been any gain in a year and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Draw lines sideways from current levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not yielding right now, and if it, if it drops, then the other pensioner grabs the pension funds, and they can't face that you know, mm-hmm. and, con- and continue to pay out as they pay out. Uh, we think the central banks will panic, of course, if that even begins to reveal itself. And we know that. That's, that's no guess on our part. They've already said as much. Uh, and we think the main beneficiary of that will be gold. Because yeah. the stock market is exhausted in terms of its use, ability to use low rates. Um, and I mm-hmm. think gold will be the prime beneficiary because they will go crazy in the monetary markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, well, that the bond rally is good for gold. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, it's. Uh, Jim Sinclair and others have talked over the years that the only real way out uh, for the central banks ultimately will be to remonetize gold. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, much as uh, maybe on a much grander scale than what FDR did uh, when he boosted the price of gold up uh, during a fixed rate regime. But um, you know that, and this is one of the reasons I want to talk to Andrew McGuire in the second half of today's show about Basel III. What might be coming on there, where they're actually going to allow gold to be uh, valued at 100%, just as much as cash and, and sovereign debt. So that that should be very interesting. That's supposed to be coming up at the end of this month. So uh, we want to get his opinion. But uh, so if gold, I mean, it's it's just, you know, where do you get the liquidity, I guess, is what is what we're going to be looking for. Where are you going to find the money? Where are you going to find the wealth uh, to bail out these? I mean, can, can you imagine, Michael, what's going to happen politically when these pension funds go down? These big teachers' oh, pension yeah. funds in the city of Chicago and places like that, all hell's going to break loose. Well, it's a realm of, of crisis that we didn't have in 2008. Sure. Uh, and it's only gotten worse since then because the uh, forced low artificial rates, uh, and therefore the pension funds have suffered. Yes, they gained because the S&P went up, and so that was well. saving grace for them. And the first several years of that, we were fully on board with that. MSA actually turned bullish right at the low week in the S&P yes. and said it's a major upturn. But then mm-hmm. once you got past 2011, you didn't really have economic growth uh, in any measurable way. It was just you know stabilized, and yet the market soared. And it was because of the monetary policy and the interest rate policy. Yeah, and that right. built this uh, paper mache uh, plywood skyscraper of the S&P, Mm-hmm. Uh, from the 1300 level all the way up to 2900 level, uh, based on nothing, mm-hmm. uh, monetary policy. And when they tried to tighten on that recently, uh, they immediately reversed course. And, yeah, uh, with no surprise, it, 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 it revealed their true nature. Right. Uh, so they're fully in line now with Draghi and with the BOJ 
Mm-hmm. And if you ever break these stock markets down and threaten their pension funds, they will go lunatic. And we think the uh, prime beneficiary will be the gold market again. Yeah. By the way, well, I, uh, just as an aside, uh, uh-huh. I know a lot of people are nervous about the miners. Mm-hmm. Right now, the GDX is trading above its highest close of the entire move. Wow. Since, August, since the August low. So, the, right so, so the gold shares are definitely close. outperforming the bullion at this moment. Yeah, uh, right now they're, they seem to have gotten a life of their own. And it makes mm-hmm. sense. We expect the miners to outperform gold on a percentage basis. And also, uh, we encourage people to consider subscribing because we also have a gold-silver mining uh, report that is uh, yes. le- our less expensive product. But mm-hmm. we have some strong views on silver right now. Uh, and, frankly, they're table pounders. Uh, we think mm-hmm. that, that silver is uh, better pay attention because I think its percentage uh, upside could be quite stunning uh, yeah, and I, comes, I think we might hear something like that from. Uh, we we might also hear from. Uh, uh, we might also hear from our last from our uh, second half guest today as well, Andrew McGuire on that. I think that's his opinion as well. Well, we've heard a lot of people, you know, be very bullish on silver, and it just hasn't seemed to happen. But one day it will. We know that's true. Um, well, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us again. Always, always great to have your insights. I, I know my. Listeners are really pleased to have you on every week, and uh, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Hopefully, Jim. we can do it yeah, again next you. week. All righty. Okay, folks. Well, uh, don't go away. Uh, we're going to go to break now. But Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of one of the most exciting new exploration stories that I'm covering, Great Bear Resources. Uh, Chris will be with us right after the break, so don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300-plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Chris Taylor with me once again. He's the president and CEO of Great Bear Resources, and 
besides the fact that Chris is a nice guy, he's got a company, a pre- he is the president of Great Bear Resources, which is on to one of the most exciting new discoveries, I think, that, that I've been following. And certainly one of the most disco- exciting ones that I've discovered over the last few years. So it's really a pleasure having him. Thanks for joining me again, Chris. Uh, very nice to talk to you again, Jay. Yeah, so um, you, you've talked a lot about uh, the geological similarities between the the, uh, the Great Red Lake Gold Mine. It was the company maker for Gold Corp. Uh, it's uh, in the same backyard as you are, your Dixie project, uh, where you're having so much success. Um, but your your work continues, and I know in, in working with geologists over the years, you keep learning new things as you keep exploring and discovering. Uh, do you still see it that way? Do you still see your project uh, geologically akin to uh, that great Red Lake mine? Yeah, and in many ways, uh, we continue to develop a story that's, uh, in some ways, I would say, uh, even better. Um, and I know that's a very sort of promotional-sounding statement, so I'm going to have to qualify that uh, right away. But um, if you looked at some of our, our recent news flow, I know you have, um, yeah. but uh, maybe some of your listeners haven't, but we recently put out uh, some results that were quite shallow gold intercepts, and one of the highlight numbers was about uh, seven over 7 meters of an ounce per ton gold. Yeah. That's within uh, basically a vein swarm or a vein system uh, that's over 140 meters wide. And I have to do a little bit of mental math, but uh, that would something uh, be on the order of about 400 feet wide of, uh, you know, approximate mm-hmm. true width of a vein system. Sure. Multiple high-grade veins in it. It's very exciting. And the difference is that, that that's all very shallow gold mineralization, whereas many of the mines around us are mining up to, uh, you know, a mile depth or more. Yes. As a matter of fact, I think when, when Gold Corp made the real high-grade discovery there, uh, it was at quite considerable depth, and they've been mining at depth uh, ever since then, I think. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And, you know, one of the things that that does is sort of add to the operational costs. So I think they're at a point uh, in their mining cycle right now, and, and keeping in mind that this is probably, uh, they had probably the most uh, profitable gold mine in the world for the better part of a decade. And, well, mm-hmm. of course, they would tell they would tell everybody that, right? <laughs> so, uh, but right now they're mining at such great depths. I mean, effectively what they need uh, in that area is um, another source of high-grade material. And fortunately for Great Bear, uh, with the work that we've been doing, uh, that's definitely what we're finding. Huh. I wonder if you've heard from those folks at Gold Corp. <laughs> I, I can neither uh, confirm you can or neither deny any such conversation confer- today. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But I would really love to yeah. have seen your itinerary at the PDAC, this last, uh, uh, this last PDAC. I would imagine well, that, you, uh, that, you, yeah. that you were pretty yeah, busy, sure. Chris. It was a very busy conference. I mean, I, I, you know, departing from geological similarities and other uh, sort of criteria, it's not often uh, that a company makes a gold discovery like Great Bear has done. And, you know, that's really something I think that the, um, the investment audience, uh, sometimes it takes them a little while to key into that fact. And sometimes even for the larger mining interests in the world, it takes them a while to key into that fact. But uh, we had a very busy PDAC conference in Toronto, a busy BMO conference prior to that. And uh, I, I can just tell you flat, flat out, I've been on the road um, talking to all kinds of people, um, you know, uh, for probably three weeks out of every month these days. So uh, it's nice to get the word out about what we have and show people that um, sort of a shallow, high-grade uh, gold discovery besides 
the highway is uh, obviously the sort of thing that uh, garners a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. And I understand you're just back from London and you're heading downtown Vancouver as we're speaking to you now. So um, I, I yeah. want to ask you, Chris, this 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 um, uh, the swarm swarms of veins, vein swarms that that you talked about in that uh, most recent uh, press release where you, you mentioned 140 meters or roughly 400 feet wide. Um, and that, so that seven and a half meter uh, intersection came between there. Uh, obviously, if people want to, they can, they can look at the, uh, at the intercept and get a, a sense of, of what this means overall. Um, but yeah. what sort of an average grade over that width might there, because there'd be a lot of blanks in between there probably. Uh, not uh, usually when we, pro- we provide an interval uh, to the market, we have to think about it like much like, uh, for instance, when Gold Corp is mining in that area, uh, a lot of the mining that they're doing right now, and we know this from having reviewed their public technical data at length, obviously it's something that we're interested in, but many of the zones that they mine are, are 30 centimeters wide, uh, that's mm-hmm. 0.3 meters up to you know half a meter, maybe a meter, meter and a half. And what they'll do is they'll they'll try to hit material in there that's 10 or 15 grams, and then um, they have to mine a minimum minimum width of about two meters because that's yeah. about the width of a scoop bucket on an, on the underground equipment. So you can't really yep. mine any narrower than that. So yep. effectively. What we're hitting, like some of those intervals that we're generating, seven meters, I mean, within that, it'll vary in grade from, uh, you know, several grams to, to hundreds of grams, right? Uh, but we tend to provide intervals that make sense in terms of reasonable mining widths. And when we see grade, uh, like in that last interval, you'd be looking at an individual vein that's uh, meters wide and flanking mm-hmm. um, veins, like I mentioned, vein swarm, um, and, and you did as well. I mean, that's other veins that come in parallel to that. And effectively, if you looked at a mineable uh, width of, uh, of, of good, consistent grade, uh, you'd end up with something like that seven-meter interval that we've reported. Oh. It's really exciting. I, I know, Chris, uh, one of the things that always impressed me and one of the reasons I picked up on your story so early was the fact that you were so consistently hitting uh, every drill hole, almost almost every drill hole went down and hit good grades. Most often they were economic grades. Uh, well, we don't know economics yet, but generally speaking, <laughs> they were considered to be ec- economic or something much better than economic in many cases. But I noticed that you put out a, a statement here that 26 of 42 drill holes, that's 62% of the holes drilled along 240 meters of strike on the hinge zone, have scored better than 15 grams per ton. That's amazing. It's phenomenal. And, and the consistency, like when we drill, uh, we drill across that zone. And it's one of the things I I think that I probably should emphasize is we're not drilling right down the throat of these things. Yes, we're not that's very to important. The width. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the way that we drill is designed to minimize the intercept width. So we're drilling as close to directly across it as we possibly can to mm-hmm. give the narrowest widths possible because that's the most useful information for future modeling and resource construction. So, um, yeah, that's exactly it. What we're seeing here is uh, very comparable uh, widths or superior widths and, um, you know, grades uh, to, uh, again, the only comparables that you can point to in this district are really mines. They are mine. So um, that's really kind of what sets this apart is you're able to generate these, uh, you know, stuff like you mentioned uh, when when we're hitting sort of, uh, 
you know, 60% of the intervals are over, uh, over half an ounce. I mean, it's phenomenal. And, and the, the drill hit rate means that when we go into uh, that sort of vein system of the hinge zone discovery and we drill across it, we know we're going to hit the zone within about 10 or 15 meters of where we have it modeled to be in just about every hole that we put in. We, we can't tell you before we drill it how thick it'll be or, or the grade or how many zones, how many veins there'll be, uh, but you can hit it consistently. And all the information that we've published so far shows that incredible consistency. And I think that's going to be a very important driver for this project going forward is that it should add up um, the mineralized volume in a very rapid order because of that exceptional consistency. How, um, how much more drilling are you going to do, Chris, before you start thinking about putting together a resource number. I think you don't want to do it too soon, but but you, you I think you've got something along the hinge zone, a 240-meter strike length, I think uh, we said. Um, and how yeah. much do you know in terms of the, the structure? How long or what is the strike length of the of the target structure? Well, that's, that's a great question. So in terms of, to answer your first one, uh, in terms of resource production, um, that'll be something once we figure out the approximate size of the system. And keep in mind, it keeps growing in strike length and uh, size down dip as we keep mm. drilling it, right? So the bigger it grows, uh, obviously, we want to make a representative publication of a resource. So, for instance, and these are just, you know, completely, you know, just numbers that I'm pulling out. But say, if a company felt they had multiple millions of ounces on their hands and they produced a resource of, uh, you know, less than a million ounces, they're probably yeah. not doing their shareholders any kind of service, right? So, right. Um, in our case, uh, we don't yet know how big it is. But the drilling that we've done so far to address your second question is uh, on the Dixie Limb, uh, area, which was the original zone on the project. There's very dense drilling across about 600 meters so far, of which all of those holes hit gold mineralization, and step-out drilling along that target of about 1.6 kilometers, so about 2.3 kilometers strike length that we've actually already defined uh, along there as showing mineralization, and then add to that this hinge zone so the yeah. Dixie Lim, the original one, add the hinge zone to that. We recently did step-out drilling of another 150 meters and then another 400 meters along strike along the hinge to give it a potential strike length of five or 600 meters. So if you thought about it, uh, we'd be pushing three kilometers of mineralized strike length, even at this early stage. And that's only, uh, we're only about eight months uh, into drilling the hinge zone discovery. So um, it looks like it has very, um, you know, very uh, attractive size potential. Goodness, and of course, uh, you're not drilling to any great depth so far. It's just you're, you're, these are really shallow, relatively shallow holes. So, really exciting. I have yeah. to ask you: you've got a second drill, uh, a drill rig on the property now. Uh, what is the purpose of that drill rig? And it seems to me that one of the press releases you put out recently, there were a lot of assays there that weren't quite as exciting. Most of them, with with one exception, you know, were sort of low grade and seemed to me like a lot of speculative investors might have been saying, "Oh man, it's all over. I'm getting out of here." They left, the share price went down, and, and my thinking is that probably the serious investors are now starting to look at this thing, you know, the professionals. I, I, I have to think they are. Yeah, that's exactly right. That second drill rig, initially, uh, it was sort of dual purpose for us. So the first one was to test new ideas that we had in different areas, and some of those panned out very nicely, like the potential extensions in the hinge area of many hundreds of meters. Other ones, uh, they hit mineralized veining. But, you know, when you go out into a new area, 
um, especially in Red Lake, your chance of hitting gold outside of the known zones is very, very low um, yeah. in the low uh, single-digit single percentages. Uh, what we saw with all these, uh, you know, they're very aggressive and widespread step-outs is we keep, we keep hitting gold, mineralization huh. in different contexts, different geological units, different veins. So mm-hmm. they, they aren't the sort of headline numbers once you're into a, a high-grade zone that you already know about, but they show that potential size. And exactly what you said is happening. I'm finding the uh, sort of institutional investor response uh, based on what we're doing right now has been very positive. But going forward, there'll be uh, that second drill rig. It'll be helping define the mineralization uh, within the known zones very aggressively. So you'll see um, a very large number of drill holes go into the market over the course of 2019. So you have, uh, can you talk to us within the last minute and a half left here? How much drilling do you plan to do this year yet? And uh, are you fully financed for that? Uh, th- that's correct. Uh, we've announced that we're in the middle of a, a 30,000-meter drill program, of which there's probably about 13,000 meters remaining in that drill program. Um, that had a budget of about 5 to $6 million. <laughs> but the company collectively, if you considered our, uh, you know, our, our cash on hand, which is about 13 or $14 million, and then we had uh, additionally uh, another several million dollars of in-the-money warrants to bring us up over about $20 million uh, fully diluted on a cash basis. Um, that effectively means that we could drill a lot more than we've already announced. So um, over the course of the year, there'll likely be announcements of an extension off that drill program. Obviously, once we plan it, we'll be uh, publishing more uh, information in our news releases about that. But I would expect to see a great deal more drilling coming at a great bear, certainly uh, to the tune of many, many additional drill holes uh, this year. And pretty much on an ongoing basis, I guess. Um, weekly or a couple of times a month at least, something like that? Very likely. Good I mean, in, in our case, you, you drill all year round, so there's no yeah. pause in the drilling. It's a constant series of results. Yeah, so we'll be, uh, we'll be expecting uh, these, uh, these results coming out on a regular basis, which also uh, is very exciting. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. It's, it's really great. A great story. Always a pleasure to have such an exciting story, and it doesn't happen all that often. So thank you so much for being with us. All right, much, all right, Sam. folks. I'm always happy to talk about it. Thank you. I bet you are, for good reason. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, don't go away. We're going to be talking to Andrew McGuire right after the break to hear what he has to say about Basel III and what that might mean for the gold price. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Andrew McGuire. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Uranium Energy Corp, NYSE, American UEC, is America's emerging uranium producer. The company is 100% unhedged and has fully permitted and licensed processing plant and production-ready uranium assets in South Texas and Wyoming. With the rising uranium spot price, 
UEC is positioned to lead and supply to the U.S. uranium requirements ahead. Visit uraniumenergy.com and on Twitter at Uranium Energy. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Andrew McGuire. Andrew sits on the advisory board of the Allocated Bullion Exchange and is a, a consultant and advisor to many international hedge fund managers, uh, bullion banks, directors, metal traders globally, all of whom rely on his uh, highly recognized field of expert market analysis and incredibly accurate ability to forecast. And, my, and um, Andrew has been with us before. Um, I'm really glad he can come back with us again today because I think he's going to help us understand what's going on, what the impact of Basel III rules might be, and also uh, to talk to him a little bit about um, a project that he's been putting together over the last number of years uh, to try to help uh, to gain real honest price discovery in precious metals. We know, and Andrew knows better than anybody how the paper markets destroy price discovery in the honest-to-goodness bullion markets. Uh, thank you for joining me again, Andrew. Oh, Jay, it's been great to be with you, with you again. It's really good to have you. I, 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 suppose, I suppose you're talking to me from London right now or somewhere over there across the pond. Yeah, that's right. It's pitch black. and uh, pitch black. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it would be at this time of the night. All right. So, Basel three rules for bank reserves. And, and – you know, as I understand it, and I don't, this is why we have you on, I, I want a better explanation, I want our listeners to understand, gold will become a tier one asset valued at 100% for banks, I think will be valued equally with uh, with cash and with sovereign debt instruments, do I have that right? Yeah, and I think it's really important to drill down into this a little bit, because, you know, when you realize the scale of this, um, because we're talking about uh, the really gold and silver trading as uh, foreign exchange crosses here. So it's, you know, we tend to, in the US, we tend to look at the uh, COMEX, the um, the paper markets, the futures markets. Reason being is because actually most, uh, you, you, all, all but accredited um, uh, CTAs, uh, and in fact, even not many of those are even allowed to trade uh, for the foreign exchange version of uh, physical gold and silver. And so really, U.S. citizens tend to think of the, the, the COMEX as the price setter. Well, yeah. it's, it's just not. And I think, yes, it's had control. It's all about position concentration. And maybe if there's, if there's time today, but if not, maybe we should come back and talk about that. And um, and uh, the the uh, even we had a recent interview in uh, December with Bart Chilton, uh, ex commissioner of the CFTC, yes. who affirmed absolutely affirmed. I worked with Bart um, during his tenure at the CFTC, but uh, during during that interview, he actually affirmed what we all guessed and all had empirical evidence of, which was that J.P. Morgan got a free pass 
when they took over Bear Stearns and uh, were provided a uh, position concentration position uh, that uh, was, as he put it, went on far too long. But I mean, I think really, let's, as you say, let's talk about Basel III. Uh, yeah. the, eff- the, effect, the effect that that's going to have mm-hmm. on the price of gold. Right. Please. Uh, so, so as I understand it now, banks. Which banks does this apply to? Does it does it apply to American banks? Does it apply to European banks? Uh, the Basel III rules. Same actors. Um, we're Same talking act. about the too big to fail, uh, and you, you, we're all we're all on the hook here because these are the uh, the taxpayer insured banks uh, right. that we know when they fail. Uh, we 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 bail them out, and when they uh, when they when they win, they privatise the profits. So, anyway, let's just look at these. Uh, this uh, part of the reason that this Basel III rules came into play was because of the concerns about uh, the too big to fail banks and their kind of uh, risks uh, classifications. So, um, as you said, Basel III rules will formally reclassify physical gold as a cash equivalent. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means, Jay, is that the largest form of gold traded on a daily basis is in London, is is paper gold, or mm-hmm. as it's called here, unallocated gold and silver. Now, as of Monday, unallocated gold would no longer be treated as a cash equivalent. So, this has massive implications for the price of gold, although informally accepted by some bullion banks in, in, since 2018 you know, in Canada and one or two places. But before Basel III, there was little distinction between unallocated and allocated gold holdings. Now, unallocated gold has to date served as a weighted interbank cash collateral. Now, <laughs> the 600, over 600 tons of unallocated gold and the over 5,000 tons of unallocated silver that are cleared between a daisy chain of London Bullion Market Association bullion banks every day, may I add. And that is in comparison to the only three to five tons of physical that ever really transacts. Wow. Now, the, these, these, the, so, so really we're talking about, this is what's going to directly be affected by these new rules, is this, this difference, this a massive amount of money floating around being cleared between these banks that really has, uh, really, really now will be affected by these rules. Now, clearly, the volume of gold and silver traded every day are not physically backed. Now, mm-hmm. they clearly, they constitute ledger entries settled daily between a cartel of bullion banks, and they agree to cash settle the gold and silver trades among themselves. Uh, and and when we talk about, I'll just briefly say, I mean, there are times, Jay, when we have seen fifty thousand tons of silver trade in a in a forty eight hour period. I mean, you know, it, it's so ludicrous. I mean, so anyone who who says, well, I'm a bit skeptical, maybe it is backed. I mean, implausible, <laughs> implausible. Yeah. Right. So um, fifty thousand tons of paper silver. Yeah, paper silver. Um, I mean, we're talking about, I think, what, what, how many miles long? I think that would probably be seven mile long of, of Brinks trucks lined up in a row. I mean, it, it, it's just ludicrous. So as a wholesaler, I mean, it's a joke. But I mean, we're very sympathetic towards uh, the poor producers uh, uh, who are being affected by this. Sure, sure. Andrew, let me, stop you. Let, let me stop you just for a minute then. So you're talking about all of this paper, gold, and silver 
uh, now when Basel III goes into effect, the banks can't count their paper uh, their paper values any longer. They're going to have to just count physical values. Do I have that right? You're, you're getting right into it. Absolutely. And and you know, so we we <laughs> let's look at that leverage. You know, what is that leverage? So so people can start to do their own sums here. We we've got empirical evidence. Uh, that's 2010 Reserve Bank of India report that's published. Uh, that verified a paper-to-physical trade ratio of 92 ounces of gold traded for every ounce of physical. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. However, these estimates do not include billions of dollars of bilateral derivative bets, which likely brings this ratio closer to 1,000 to 1. And that's wow. no exaggeration. I mean, this is this has been an un, a non-delivery uh, market for so long, and these are, these levels have accrued over time. Now, let's not forget that, unlike any other form of commodity, such as oil, grain, etc., and people don't think of it in this way, gold and silver are actually trading on the global foreign exchange markets as mm-hmm. a cash pairs trade. Mm-hmm. That meaning that. And cash is the operative word here, and this is what we, you're getting to, you're drilling down to, is yeah. it has to be cash. Now, but if it's not cash, that's a problem. And, and of course, this forms an, a very important current of a five trillion a day foreign exchange market where, you know, if I'm long uh, the euro or the yen uh, versus the dollar, well, it's cash. So one side is cash, the other side is mm-hmm. cash, not an issue. But if I'm short cash gold mm-hmm. uh, or against the dollar, that means I have to have that gold in case I needed to deliver it. So under these new rules, under Basel III rules, uh, unless the clearing banks can demonstrate that the short sale component of a foreign exchange pairs trade is backed by a cash equivalent. Uh, and uh, when it comes to trading a first-tier gold asset, it, be- it then becomes a deliverable, this is the important part, that mm-hmm. a deliverable mm-hmm. con- component mm-hmm. of a short gold, long dollar FX trade. And let's talk dollar here. It could be euro, it could be, yeah. it could be sure. any other currency, it could be a Venezuelan currency. But uh, so unlike... Unlike before these rules, unless the bank or trading house selling gold for dollars has the bullion available for physically delivery, and I'm talking about auditably uh, available, much like the SGE would be or the other physical exchanges around the world, you have to have the physical bullion deposited before you can sell it. Um, so they're going to they're gonna need to demonstrate this. And to be honest, they'll be they'll be non-compliant and in default of these mm-hmm. new Basel III rules, right. which, would ex- which is going to expose this daisy chain. And I think this is we talked about it. This is taxpayer-insured LBMA clearing banks, and they're going to be exposed to unacceptable counterparty risk. Well, won't they uh, won't they be given some time to comply with this? And and does this mean then that that these banks are going to have to? I mean, if they don't have the gold, they have to get the cash. They have to have one one of those assets or another, right? I, I think sovereign debt instruments count as well. So, is it a matter of exchanging? Like, like when when this goes into effect, all of a sudden, all that gold, that paper gold that they call they claim to be gold, it's not going to be there, right? Because they're going to have to have physical gold. So, I mean, are we looking at a potential crisis near term as a result of this, or are the banks going to be given enough time to? acquire the gold or whatever they need to comply 
Yeah, I, I think that, that you, you've nailed it. Uh, there has to be a phase-in period uh-huh. for some institution to comply, but it, it cannot be tolerated for the taxpayer insured too big to fail banks to which these Basel III rules are actually being targeted at. Now, obviously, let's not forget what happened in 2008 and uh, Bank of International Settlements being the central bank of central mm-hmm. bank is now trying to play um, trying to play this uh, this this out to, to a, so that they've actually warned uh, the, the the industry that uh, something has to give here. So yeah, there's going to be a phase-in period. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about major drama on Monday, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, um, look here's what's happened. These guys, these these actors, already know what's coming down the pike, um, and that's why these privileged insiders and i'm talking about these are the banks that have primarily the banks that have gold accounts at the bank of england um the goldman's jp morgan hsbc scotia bank ubs standard bank deutsche bank even have for the last 18 months been stealthily accruing physical gold and silver for their own books oh this is why so uh, and and we've been on record um i remember going on record uh, publicly saying that hey this is 18 months ago. Goldman are going long here. And we, we know that because we're in the wholesale business. We tend to see the footprints. We tend to see the flows. And, you know, while everyone's got their eye on the paper market and watching these, uh, these, these uh, wash and rinse cycles, these same banks are using those wash and rinse cycles, uh, using their concentrated positions mm-hmm. to actually accrue physical which is so, really something new for the banks, for the commercial banks, right? This is really something new. They used to be net shorts all the time. And this is it. And that's the other thing. You look at the COT report. Okay, this is just one side of an equation. And this is what boggles my mind is that intelligent people uh, look at this COT report and fail to even connect the dots that mm-hmm. on the other side of that uh, equation is the over-the-counter market, which is far larger than what happens on the COMEX. So, you know, what good is one side of an, of an equation? The other side of the equation is that these guys are actually going long uh, in the over-the-counter markets to hedge their short positions on the COMEX, which tends to uh, fuddle people's minds and say, well, look, hey, they're short. We're, we're indoctrinated to know when they go short, we mustn't buy because uh, uh-huh. we're going to get rinsed. So, uh-huh. it's so, so the speculators really- are staying away. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, and then whenever we see the speculators go long, everyone's saying, that's it, they're going to get nailed. And sure enough, they get nailed. Every time they go the other side of the trade, they get nailed. Um, <laughs> these, we're talking about banks that never have a losing trading de- a trading uh-huh. uh, position. Yeah. So, but I think the important thing is, I know you were drilling down into this. Um, so what about the officials managing the gold and silver mm-hmm. FX crosses against the dollar? Um, and although officials acknowledge central bank currency intervention um, and that these foreign exchange agreements exist, you know, for example, uh, managing yen against the dollar, et cetera, et cetera, these are, these are agreed, there are agreed parameters. And despite proof that the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank of all central banks, has an active gold trading desk, Officials, officials actually denied they're actually managing gold and silver FX crosses. Well, that's uh-huh. ludicrous. Uh-huh. Ludicrous. In other words, yes, we'll manage all the foreign exchange crosses except gold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we've got published 
LBMA data that confirms FX Gold uh, constitutes a five trillion a year component of all foreign exchange transactions. And, and again, we're not accounting for derivatives here. That's totaling closer to 15 to 18 trillion per annum. So really the question is, you know, how is this going to play out? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you've obviously got uh, a management issue here where you've got the, the, uh, the agent banks or the banks that have been acting that have the privilege of having accounts at the uh, Bank of England uh, and if they would obviously know when their situation was going to play out, they would be positioned uh, correctly for it. If they would know that something was coming up for sale or mm-hmm. if that, uh, you know, so, so essentially these guys have, be, have been in a position where, privileged position where they've been accruing this long position. So I think most of these banks are going to be very, very happy to see a higher price. Now, the the the. The Bank of International Settlements holds the book of accrued derivative bets, and we, we conservatively estimate this to, a, to be exceed a trillion dollars. And we know that it's a major problem because at every mark-to-market over-the-counter OPEX event, which tends to be the last trading day of each month, we evidence these officials' footprints appear. And how do we know they are officially sanctioned? Sell orders, it's the manner and form they appear, Jay. Rational mm-hmm. traders do not choose the thinnest hours to place very large orders. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why would we? None of us wholesalers are, would, would be choosing a moment like that. And it's mm-hmm. the manner and form they appear, they appear. Not only that, not only would a rational trader not choose the thinnest market hours, but under the increasing scrutiny of regulators, no single entity trader would dare exceed intraday position limits without a free pass to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear. I mean, so even though we have a gold trading desk, we know they're inter- intervening in the markets. We're really, we understand through the footprints and the manner in which it happens that this wash and rinse cycle that tends to come through at the end of each month mm-hmm. or within that month um, is part of marking these enormous derivative bets to market. Mm-hmm. So, so the banks, so, so the banks will be happy if we see a higher a higher gold price because their balance sheets will be will be expanding, right? And they'll be able to lend more money or to grow their business. Yeah, and that's exactly why while this global global scramble to allocate ensues, it's going to backwash into the synthetic markets. But but again. It's this. It's it's the. Why is it? Is it any wonder the LBMA uh, were forecasting fifteen hundred thirty-two dollar gold for two thousand and nineteen? Why mm-hmm. Goldman is projecting fourteen hundred gold for two thousand and nineteen? Mm-hmm. These are not altruistic companies. You yeah. know? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, it would seem to me that in some ways this this issue of paper gold, paper, you know, of the price uh, discovery denial occurring because of uh, because of these paper markets that this is one aspect that might correct that I mean to a certain extent uh, would we see the real physical gold price or, or will the paper markets persist in playing these games and denying price discovery in spite of this Basel three ruling well I don't think that's possible now I think these rules are in play um, and uh, really you cannot ignore the fact I mean let's face it the banks have already been gearing up for this for 18 months mm-hmm. um, it's just flown under the radar for most people who you know my sure. look at the paper markets but you know this also comes Jay this also comes 
at a time when producers are planning to cut supply. And, and we're talking about some of the big boys by a massive 20%. And um, you can drill down into the October uh, Toronto, Toronto Dominion research, um, uh, which came out uh, last October, it was. And uh, what they were talking about is that attributable global gold reserves have declined by 50% in the last five years. Wow. Um, and we know from a wholesale market perspective that is extremely conservative. And it means there's an incentive for producers to build up their gold reserves into tightening physical supply. So now we've got two things going on. We've got a uh, the need to allocate, and we've also got, I mean, Goldcore, for example, uh, they're not alone in saying they're going to cut, uh, projecting 20% reserve growth um, mm-hmm. uh, f- this year. Uh, well, that means that around 20% less annual global production mm-hmm. is going to come to market for sale from the big producers. Mm-hmm. So we move from a situation where we've got a rock and a hard place here, yeah. where almost all forward production, which was historically sold forward or hedged, to a situation, the inverse situation, where producers are building reserves for no other reason than to capitalize on higher prices. Wow, interesting. So it's a perfect a perfect storm, really. All right, Andrew, we're just about out of time now, and I want to get to your what you've been working on for so many years and uh, the Kinesis project. Uh, talk to us about how that works and how that uh, how you hope to see that really overcome this uh, this price discovery issue and how that might help and how people can profit from it. Right. Well, in a word, Gresham's law. Um, look, by attaching a yield to gold and silver bullion, an investor can weigh up this yield attached to gold and silver against all other asset classes. So by attaching a yield to any asset class, you increase the value of that asset. Sure. And this has massive implications for how gold is actually valued. Now, by digitizing one-to-one back physical gold and putting it on the trustless blockchain rails, gold becomes fungible in small enough units to use as an everyday currency. And that is what Kinesis has done. However, what differentiates Kinesis from every other gold-backed currency is that when spent, Kinesis generates the user or minter a yield, or if you like, a share of the transaction fees. Now, it's really welcome to see other gold-backed currencies appear as it draws attention to the merits of holding physical gold. Um, However, none of these currencies solve the efficient means of exchange problem which requires the necessary liquidity, nor do they defeat Gresham's law. So, in other words, in sync with Basel III rules, through Kinesis, we're about to witness the remonetizing of gold and silver for the masses. And it's welcome to see a multitude of gold-backed currencies appear as it draws attention to the merits of holding physical gold. But I see limited adoption of these currencies as none of the gold currencies defeat Gresham's law. And unless I'm incentivized to use my physical gold holdings as a currency, why would I spend it, Jay? I would rather save my gold and spend my depreciating useless fiat currency first and and hold on to my precious gold as savings. So only by attaching a yield to gold and and silver, I may add, can Mm -hmm. I be incentivized to use it as a payment system. And I see Kinesis as the trigger for a revolution in how money transacts 
But from the perspective of seasoned gold and silver investors and traders, Kinesis provides the key to leveling the playing field altogether. And that's right. the reason why I'm supporting the launch of Kinesis, the Kinesis monetary system. It puts the power of gold and silver position concentration back in the hands of us, the people. Literally billions of dollars of physical gold and silver is required to monetize this Kinesis currency, which utilizes the well-proven institutional grade allocated bullion exchange physical gold and silver platform that you mentioned earlier all right andrew um, we, where where do people go to uh, to pick up on this and to follow up on it um if i can send you a link it's kinesis.money mm-hmm. and uh, you can find out everything you need to know about kinesis and how that is going to solve the broken banking system yeah it's k-i-n-e-s-i-s correct dot money money. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for being with us again. It's always a pleasure having you, and I hope we can do it again sometime soon uh, to keep up with these fast-changing events in the monetary system. Thank you so much. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. John Robino will be with me next week, John Anderson of Triumph Gold also, and Michael Oliver. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. 